a rough climb off the ledge in the seventh pit, a little bit of poetic theory, genius, and virtue. And now we're on to the eighth pit of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork, comedy. But you probably knew that. Well, we are in Canto 26. We're at lines 25 through 48. We are in the eighth circle of Dante's hell, the circle of fraud, a circle that is immense, full of evil pouches, malabolgia in the Florentine, full of these evil pouches. We've come out of the seventh, full of thieves, and we're about to get our first glimpse into the eighth after we had a little bit of poetic theory about tempering genius with virtue. If none of that makes too much sense, you might want to go back and catch up with us. There are lots of episodes behind us. Otherwise, here's Canto 26, lines 25 through 48 of Inferno. Let's say there's a rustic fellow lounging about on a hillside in the season when the thing that illuminates the world conceals his face the least from us. At the moment when the fly gives way to the mosquito... He sees the fireflies in the valley below, where he perhaps plows his field or tends his vineyards. The eighth pouch was resplendent with just that many little fires when I got to fully see it up at the point where I could peer down into its depths. As the one who got his vengeance with the bears saw the chariot of Elijah take its departure, the horses lifting themselves erect on their way up into the heavens so that he could not follow them with his eyes, except he could see way up there a solitary flame like a little cloud rising up and up. Just in such a way, each flame moved itself along the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, even though each flame had a sinner inside it. I straightened up on the bridge to see better. Had I not grabbed hold of a rocky crag, I would have fallen in without being pushed. My guide saw how the pit grabbed my attention and said, The spirits are inside those fires. Each one is clothed with what's incinerating him. I'm going to stop right there with the first glimpse of the eighth of the evil pouches of hell. This is a rather complicated passage, believe it or not. It doesn't appear to be at first blush, but the more you think about this passage, the stranger and odder it gets. From all the way up with those fireflies down to Virgil's speech at the end, in which he tells us what we already know. This is my rough English translation of the Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. And you can drop comments there. Hooray. I have fixed my website, updated it so that comments can actually be dropped on the website page itself. And you could get into a discussion with other people who are walking with us through Dante's comedy. Let's take this bit line by line and see what we can make of it. The passage starts, let's say there's a rustic fellow lounging about on a hillside in the season when the thing that illumines the world, that must be the sun, right, conceals his face the least from us. So it's high summer. It may, in fact, be the southern summer solstice when the sun is at its height. Here's this guy. He's hanging out on a hillside. He's looking down into the valley. It's that 
period of the day when the fly, as the passage says, gives way to the mosquito. So we're in the evening and the fireflies come out. He says he sees the fireflies in the valley below where he perhaps plows his field or tends his vineyard. The eighth pouch was resplendent with just that many little fires when I got to fully see it up at the point where I could peer down into its depths in that bridge that goes over the pouches. When I got up there and I could look down, I could see all these little fires. This is an interesting passage to say the least. It seems to be deeply ironic, but why is it ironic? After all, we're in hell and we have this rustic bit about mosquitoes and vineyards and plowing fields. It's a very romantic scene, if I can use a 19th century word, and we kind of feel an underlying irony. What is so ironic about it? Maybe it's that rustic imagery, the smallness of it all. Here's this fellow guy. He's, you know, some peasant. He's, he's the guy that plows fields, tends vineyards. He's up on the hillsides lounging about. It's rustic. It's small. It's small people. And I've already told you that Ulysses lies just in front of us. Ulysses is not a small person, to say the least. And yet we start our journey with this peasant who's lounging about watching fireflies. Maybe the smallness is part of why we see irony here. Or Odysseus is a guy who travels a lot, who travels all over the Aegean. And as we're going to find out in Canto 26, all over the whole world, And here's a guy who stays home. Maybe that's the irony. Taking pleasure in your home, in where the fireflies come out, where you plow your field and tend your vineyard. You're going to find out this is not what Odysseus wants to do. He doesn't want to stay home. In fact, the story we're going to be told is what happens after he comes home to Penelope, how he leaves again. Here's a guy contended with being at home. Or notice this bit of irony. This guy's lounging about on a hillside, and I told you ahead of us is Mount Purgatory. Again, small, rustic, when this giant mountain where the redeemed purgate their sins lies ahead of us in this very canto. And yet, here's the yet. It's a beautiful passage. Let's say there's a rustic fellow lounging about on a hillside in the season when the thing that illuminates the world conceals his face the least from us. I'm going to come back to this later, but just hold in your head right now that the sun is spoken of paraphrastically here. Remember paraphrasis, walking around something without naming it? Well, we've walked around the sun without actually saying the word sun. That's going to prove important to us in passages ahead. But still, look how beautiful this is. Hillside, sun, full summer day, fly gives way to the mosquito. Okay, that's not so nice, but still nonetheless, it's a beautiful description. And the fireflies come out in the valley below and we can see his plowed fields and his vineyards. And it's just beautiful, right? Even though we feel the irony, we also sense its beauty, that it has this gorgeousness about it that seems so weirdly out of place. How can something be beautiful in hell? Oh, that's a 
good question. And it's a question that will plague us for the 26th canto. Okay, let's go on in the passage. As the one who got his vengeance with the bears, we're back to speaking paraphrastically. I want to talk to you about this in a minute. So the chariot of Elijah take its departure, the horses lifting themselves erect on their way up into heavens so that he could not follow them with his eyes, except he could see way up there a solitary flame like a little cloud rising up and up. Just in such a way, each flame moved itself along the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, even though each flame had a sinner inside of it. The story is that Elijah is this great prophet, and he is not going to die according to the story told in the Old Testament. Instead, he's going to be taken up in a chariot of fire without dying, and before he is taken up, his, what do I want to say, student, the guy who follows him, Elisha, is going to take Elijah's mantle, thereby becoming the next big prophet, take his mantle and watch his master depart in the chariot. That's the story that's going on behind there. And as for that line, as the one who got his vengeance with the bears, this is how we know it's Elisha. It's a paraphrastic phrasing for Elisha. Elisha is walking down a road at one point, and a bunch of kids, a great huge bunch of kids, make fun of him, and they call him Baldy. They say, go down, old Baldy. You know, they're making fun of this old man walking down the road. And it seems that God takes his vengeance out on these children because two bears come out of the underbrush and kill all the children for making fun of Elisha. We have a little bit of strangeness, a little bit of oddness in the story itself. And in fact, the comparison becomes more and more difficult the more you think about it. But I just wanted to present the story to you first. If you want to find it in the Bible, it's in 2 Kings. It's in chapter 2. It starts at about verse 7 through 14. That's the point where Elijah goes up into heaven. And then later in that same chapter, verses 23 through 24, that's when the bears come out and attack the children for Elisha when Elisha is walking down the road for calling him baldy. That story then sits back behind this passage, but it's curious the more you think about it. It's curious because is Ulysses being compared to Elijah? Now, again, I'm telling you that Ulysses lies ahead of us, but we're being told that these little bits of fire are like Elijah's chariot way up in the heavens, went so far away from Elisha that it just looks like a spot of fire way up in the sky, like a little cloud rising up and up. That comparison would suddenly seem to put at least the sinner we're going to meet Ulysses, in the position of Elijah. That doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem like Dante should be doing that. Or is really the only comparison here between Dante and Elisha, the student of Elijah. In other words, Dante is the one who's now ready to accept the mantle of prophecy as Elijah takes his leave. But that doesn't really feel right, then why is Elisha spoken of paraphrastically? Why isn't Elijah 
the one who's elided in the text, if our poet wants us to see him as the next prophet. The more you think about this passage, the more complicated it gets. There's this opening simile about fireflies. That's hard enough because it's beautiful, while at the same time it may be ironic. Then you come down to this second simile in the passage about Elijah and Elisha and Elijah being taken up to heaven. And these are being compared to the flames in the pit Elijah and his courses are. But that comparison doesn't quite makes sense. It's extremely difficult to figure it out. And believe it or not, it's so difficult that commenting on this passage about Elijah and Elisha and the poet and Ulysses and all that is actually a fairly modern concern. Robert Hollander claims that the first person to talk about the difficulty of this simile um, was a scholar in 1986. So it's extremely recent in criticism that anybody has tried to tease this out and figure it out. Who's being talked about here? How can you call a sinner Elijah? How can you compare a sinner caught in a flame to Elijah? And in fact, there may be more strangeness going on here. We're told in the epistle of James in the New Testament, in chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, that the tongue that which you make language with. The tongue is really a whirlwind of fire. The passage talks about how rudders, small rudders move ships through the water, and the tongue is like that. It's like this tiny little rudder. And in fact, it's worse than that because it can send a ship to its destruction. The tongue can send a person to his or her destruction. And the tongue is constantly on fire, untamed thing. Surely that's a reference here to these tongues of fire that enclose these sinners inside of them. Fair enough. And we would have to say the condemnation of the tongue in the epistle of James chapter 3 is sitting back behind this passage. But there's another tongue of fire and that's a Pentecost when the apostles are gathered together and the Tongues of fire fall down on them with a mighty wind. That wind will become important to this passage. With a mighty wind, and they start speaking in tongues, in everybody else's language, in languages they don't know. How are these flames compared to Pentecostal fire? Or in what way would anything in a hellscape be like Pentecostal fire? Do you see what's happening here? The passage is becoming increasingly complicated. And the more we pick apart these two images, the rustic fellow and his fireflies, Elijah and Elisha and the flaming chariot up in the sky, the more we see that they're not fully explanatory for the passage or the ways that they explain the passage bear lots of irony and ambiguity in upon us. This is a very complicated setup for what comes next. Let's finish out the passage, but I have a few more things to say even after that. 
Dante the Pilgrim says he straightened himself up on the bridge to see better. So he kind of stands up on his tiptoes, right? He sees all these flames, these like tongue-like flames floating around down inside this ditch. And he straightens up to get a better view. And then the line, had I not grabbed hold of a rocky crag, I would have fallen in without being pushed. So the pilgrim almost falls in. What is it? about this pouch that so captures Dante. I've told you the plot. Ulysses lies ahead of us. There is something about this pouch that could cause the pilgrim almost to fall in if he didn't have self-control. <laughs> if he didn't have self-control, I'm really larding it up here and ex- trying to explain to you my interpretation of it. If he didn't have some kind of self-control, he could fall in. And then at the end of that, his catching himself as he's about to fall in, then Virgil speaks up. Virgil saw how the pit grabbed my attention and said, the spirits are inside those fires. Each one is clothed with what's incinerating him. Virgil seems almost matter-of-fact, first of all, and Virgil doesn't add anything we don't know. We were already told, just in such a way, each flame moved along in the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, each, even though each flame had a sinner inside of it. So we've already been told what the point is, And then Virgil reiterates the point without advancing the plot. Intriguing. It's interesting that Virgil doesn't add anything to what we don't already know. Curious. (laughs) Beyond interesting. Curious. Especially curious given Virgil's large role in what's ahead of us. Virgil will play a key role in what's to come in Canto 26. And right now, his position seems to be rather mm, matter-of-fact and stating what we already know. Is the Pilgrim Dante getting better equipped to understand hell? So he doesn't need Virgil for these explanatory functions. And now when Virgil offers them, they are largely repetitive. Is that part of what's going on? That's not actually going to hold out through the rest of Inferno. But are we being cued to that now that the Pilgrim is getting better and better at identifying the problems or the sinners or the sins in Inferno? And so is needing Virgil less and less and Virgil's role is becoming more and more repetitive? That will certainly bear out on Mount Purgatory. It doesn't necessarily bear out here in Inferno. And there's one other little problem in this passage. Remember, it starts with the guy on the hillside, lounging about, <laughs> looking down at his fields. The fly gives away the mosquito. The fireflies come out. It's all very beautiful. Do you remember that way back in Canto 24, at the opening we had another rustic. That's that guy who comes out of his house and sees the hoarfrost and thinks, oh man, it's not even spring yet and goes back inside. And when he comes out, the hoarfrost has melted and the sun is up and the day is bright and off he goes. And that began the long passages about the metamorphosizing thieves. That early bit with the rustic in in Canto 24, lines 1 through 15, is reminiscent 
of this bit. They echo back and forth to each other. There it was early spring. Here it's the height of summer. Is that important? I think it might be because, and dare I say this, you can read Canto 26 as a restart or at least from this moment forward as a restart. If the poet got out of control with the thieves and if his poetics ran in front of virtue and he got out of control, this then, this reference to another rustic figure would be a restart. And isn't it interesting that this text is so full of other texts, Second Kings, the New Testament book of James, the book of Acts in the New Testament, but not classical texts. And what were so important to the thieves? All those classical texts, Ovid and Lucan. Even though a classical figure lies in front of us, we have just come through a passage heavily laden with biblical references, maybe even the hillside as a reference to Mount Purgatory, although that's not in the Bible itself. But certainly lots of biblical references, Elijah, Elisha, the tongue is a flame of fire, Pentecost, all running around inside this passage, whereas before when we had the peasant and his anger at the hoarfrost, we then blew out to all kinds of classical passages from Virgil, from Ovid, from Lucan. Is this a restart? And a restart to where the poet has to go back, restart, and this time take the sacred text, the Bible, as the basis of what he wants to say. If that's the case, then we can even more argue that the pit of the thieves is an overreach, that it's mad folly. But that brings us to things much ahead of us. What I'd like to do now is go back and reread you all of Canto 26 up to this moment, up and through this moment. I want to do this because I want you to see the way that Canto 26 starts to shift wildly. The ground under our feet is moving in Canto 26 in really fundamental ways. And if you just listen to the Canto so far, all the way out to where we are today from the very opening, you'll see that it just keeps moving around. Here it goes. Take pride, Florence, that you've gotten so grandiose that you beat your wings over sea and land. Your name even spreads out across hell. Among the thieves, I found five who were your citizens, a fact that brings me much shame. It certainly doesn't raise you to the heights of honor. But if those dreams we have near dawn are true, you'll feel in only a little more time the very things that Prato and others crave for you to feel." If it had already happened, it wouldn't have been too soon. And would that it had happened, because it must happen. Even so, it will weigh me down more and more the longer I live. We left there, and along those stairs that had made the rocky outcrop for our first climb, my guide hoisted himself up and pulled me after him. So we strolled along on our solitary way among the slag and the rocks along the ridge. Our feet couldn't make their way without our hands. I was sad back then, and I'm sad again now when I turn my mind to what I saw there. For that reason, I'll 
pull the reins on my talent more so than usually so that it won't run where virtue doesn't lead it so that if some good star or even something better has given me all so much good i won't dispossess myself of it Let's say there's a rustic fellow lounging about on a hillside in the season when the thing that illuminates the world conceals his face least from us. At the moment when the fly gives way to the mosquito, he sees the fireflies in the valley below where he perhaps plows his field or tends his vineyards. The eighth pouch was resplendent with just that many little fires when I got to fully see it up at the point where I could peer down into its depths. As the one who got his vengeance with the bears saw the chariot of Elijah take its departure, the horses lifting themselves erect on their way up into the heavens so that he could not follow them with his eyes, except he could see way up there a solitary flame like a little cloud rising up and up. Just in such a way, each flame moved itself along the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, even though each flame had a sinner inside it. I straightened up on the bridge to see better. Had I not grabbed hold of a rocky crag, I would have fallen in without being pushed. My guide saw how the pit grabbed my attention and said, The spirits are inside those fires. Each one is clothed with what's incinerating him. I'm sure right now you can see the way dreams in the morning, and here we come out to the evening with the rustic, how the condemnation of Florence, which is so clear, suddenly gets cloudy, how that inserted bit about how talent has to be somehow tempered with virtue is playing. I'm sure you can see already the way the passage is shifting. It's fractured. You got to subscribe to this podcast. You got to become a part of the walk with the rest of us. Please subscribe. Please rate the podcast. You can give it a rating at drop right down on Apple Podcasts, and you'll see how to do that. I see a lot of listeners from the UK. I really appreciate the comments on the UK site for Apple Podcasts. I also appreciate, of course, the bulk of my listeners who come from the United States, particularly from the states of Oregon and New York. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and being a part of the journey. Canto 26 is one of my favorites, and it's about to get even better. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.